0: Salesforce finds responsibility, but it still has AI dreams. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard. I'm here with Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers. We're doing another Tech Thursday with earnings from Salesforce and CrowdStrike to go through. Hi, Tim. How are you?
1: Fully caffeinated, ready to go.
0: Glad to hear it. Well, Tim, I'm kind of an earnings call person. I like to kind of check the vibes and so I listened to the Salesforce call last night c e o Mark Benioff. he sounded like a man who had been through a war. he emerged out the other side. He said the phrase couldn't be happier about five times, so that that seems pretty good. The company did raise guidance and margins are doing great. Is Salesforce back?
1: He's feeling it, isn't he?
0: Yeah, he is feeling it
1: I mean he is and and that's good to see because Salesforce has had some rough moments. And I think you're right to say that they have been through the war and they, I'll say, they're starting to come out the other side. This is the second consecutive quarter, I think, we have seen a new Salesforce. And what I mean by a new Salesforce, Deidre, is that it's a Salesforce that is. A bit more focused on cost management, efficiency, efficient growth, generating capital that they believe they can put to work organically. And I know we're going to talk about AI, and so they have some things they're talking about. And you know they're doing things as a company that are theirs, not just something that they went out put a lot, threw a lot of money at and brought it into the fold and said, now it's ours. We went out and (laughs) grabbed it instead of building it. And so there's, there's a bit of building. And I think that too lends some internal confidence to the Salesforce story. But let's quickly hit some numbers because there are some good ones. Overall gap operating margin was at 17.2%. I want to highlight just for a second, if we can appreciate, Deidre, that that's a gap operating margin, meaning that it's not adjusted to look better. They did give an an adjusted number that was over 31%, but I don't think we need that. I think we could just say at 17.2%, yes, could be higher for a software company, there is no doubt, but that's still a very healthy margin for for a company that does as much business as Salesforce does. That's an excellent number, and it is going up. And part of the reason it's going up is efficiencies both on the top line, so we're going to talk about the gross margin, then we're going to talk about the operating margin. At the gross margin line, I thought this was really interesting, Deidre, $883 million year-over-year increase in revenue. The gross profit, so that is the profit remaining after you pay, just what it costs to deliver the products that Salesforce delivers. Gross profit was up $897 million year over year. So the gross margin went up a little bit, meaning that they are doing good work. They are building product and they're building more profitable product. And then in addition, overall operating expenses were down 7.1% year over year, leading to that much bigger operating margin, leading to much bigger earnings. Again, this is a really interesting efficiency story. This is kind of, I would say, a bit of a renaissance for Salesforce And what they're showing the market is, we told you that we could be as profitable as we want to be when we want to be that profitable. And now they're kind of making good on it. And that's very interesting to see.
0: I think this is part of the whole, you know, I mean, I keep coming back to that Zuckerberg, like year of efficiency thing, because we're seeing it really, Mm. really all over tech. And yeah, Salesforce, they were spending a lot of money buying stuff. They were throwing, you know, kind of throwing everything all over the place. And they really kind of like figured out like, okay, we're going to focus on what we have now and we're going to link it up and we're going to make it stronger and better, which, which is nice to see. But I want to talk just for a second about buybacks because I know that's something you always have an opinion on. Uh, they've been buying a, back a lot of uh, shares over the past couple quarters. They did it again, $1.9 billion on shares. What are you thinking about this?
1: I think we give them some credit. It's, it's one of those partial credit things because they do issue a lot of equity to their employees. Now, yeah. to be fair, if you look at the cash flow statement what you're going to see is that they are still issuing quite a lot of stock based compensation however it is lower year over year than it used to be and that is that's nice to see so let me just Get my numbers and, and and talk about this. So, overall, stock-based compensation expense was seven hundred twenty-four million for the three months ended July thirty-first, twenty twenty-three. That is down from eight hundred fifty-one million in the year prior period. So, if you just kind of subtract that out, let's say seven hundred fifty million out of one point nine billion, you're left with about one point one five billion dollars worth of actual buybacks so it's like you, you really have to put it in context it's not really 1.9 billion that they're spending to buy back shares when they're issuing so much in shares but they're issuing less than they used to and so those those, those that buyback amount does have an effect and diluted share both basic and diluted shares uh were were down year over year so the basic shares outstanding were down to 975 million from 997 million. And your diluted shares were down to 986 million from just over a billion shares, which is, I mean, again, that that is meaningful. That is a meaningful drawdown in the shares outstanding. So they're delivering some value back to shareholders but it's uh, we shouldn't say it's 1.9 billion that is not true it's still offset by what they give to employees and they give a lot and i i am largely okay with that Deidre, because that has been one of the values of salesforce is when they recruit you in they really want you to get on board, they want to give you a lot of equity. You get invested in the company and they try to get the most out of you because of that. So you kind of know, if you're a Salesforce shareholder, you really should know that going in, that they are going to give a lot of equity for their employees. And what they expect out of their employees is that they're going to overperform and deliver at a fairly big level. That has been the expectation and they've done that in the past. And so now they're still issuing that equity, But they're also buying back enough that they can still draw down the outstanding share count above and beyond what they issue to employees, which is new. Uh, And they've done it for a couple of quarters now. So nice to see.
0: Well, we've talked about the sort of ways that Salesforce has been uh, becoming more responsible. But it's still Mark Benioff. He's still... You know, he's still eyes to the sky. And you teased it earlier. We gotta talk AI. He's so yeah, super, super bullish. Uh <laughs> you know, and he's but it kind of makes sense to me. You and I, we're both former PR people. Yes. And we have both lived and died by using a database in a CRM. And talking about AI in a CRM to me makes a lot of sense. Sure. Uh, you know, in terms of how it can, you know, just really make things a lot less complicated. I know that they have their Dreamforce conference coming up. The Foo Fighters are playing. Dave Matthews is going to be there. It's a whole thing. But do you think that... So we're going to hear more about that then. But do you? what do you feel about the Salesforce AI component, especially with kind of slack in the mix and all the workflows that they're talking about?
1: Well, it can be useful. AI is only as useful as the data that it is bound to. So if you point AI at a very specific problem with a very specific data set, I think you can get value out of that. And one of the, probably the most interesting use case for AI is this idea of co-piloting. And this is where I think the Salesforce AI initiatives, such as they are, I'm going to call them nascent right now. You really got to show me, you got to prove it to me that there is a lot of stuff happening and the Salesforce customers are using this in mass. I don't believe that that's happening yet. And that is fine. It's still early. Okay. But as a co-piloting mechanism, I think it can be highly useful. So let's use the example that you gave here, because we were both in PR and marketing. And so if you are um, putting in let's say as a co-pilot, you are trying to build a list of qualified prospects who have very detailed requirements that we know about them, you know, inside the Salesforce environment, like very specific attributes, or I want to tag a bunch of, you know, like, let's say there are, um, I want to build a list that is within, I'm going to ask the AI to say, I need you to build a list for me of qualified prospects that have Quip within 30 miles of Durham, North Carolina. I'm just making stuff up here. That's the kind of co-piloting search that an AI should be able to do. It should be able to automate that. And then what you take is you build that and that becomes an automated list. It's It's a data subset. And then maybe I can combine that with other things that are useful to me. As a salesperson but what i don't want to be if i want to improve sales efficiency i don't want to be the one that's doing data gathering i want my ai to be doing data gathering you know um doing other types of work to automate my targeting work so that i can just be productive as a salesperson and go out and close deals. That's what I want. So as a co-piloting mechanism, I think AI can be very useful there, Deidre.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to leave time to talk CrowdStrike, so let's switch gears Good quarter for them. CrowdStrike—that's uh, cybersecurity. Uh, they saw revenue grow by 37%. Uh, they made—they—they they, they trumpeted the gap profitability for the second quarter in a row. So, Tim, I've been taught by wise fools like you to kind of think about profitability not as like the most important thing sometimes. So, I know they're focused on profitability. Do we want that? They also need to kind of grow. Do we want them to be focused on profitability or? Growth or I'm I know both, but what do you think you have CrowdStrike now?
1: Well, you want them to be focused on growth. I think they are doing a very good job of growing at at a profitable pace. And I think they've done you can see how they have started to dominate this market by virtue of what they've done. To really marginalize their number one competitor in this space which is sentinel one and sentinel one has essentially put itself up for sale because they've not really done a good job of outcompeting crowdstrike crowdstrike instead has really come in and i would say put a very large footprint into this i mean they've really sort of put their foot down and asserted themselves in in this market, and they are hoovering up share at a blistering pace. And because of that, they are scaling quite well. And to your point, they are generating profits, and they don't have to over invest in order to generate more share. I mean, they are increasing their their investments here. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, but so they, it's you know for example let's just take a quick example here on sales and marketing that was 283 million in the most recent quarter that's up from about 225 million year over year so they're able to increase their spend to increase their share and still generate some profits coming all the way through here which is kind of nice to see now i will say this on an operating basis, and this is important, they did get a a loss. So let's be clear about this. They were profitable, but in terms of their core operations, that was about a $15.4 million loss, Deidre, versus a $48.3 million loss in the year prior. Where this gets profitable is wait for it, 36.6 thirty six point six million in interest income because uh-huh. interest rates <laughs> are through the roof yeah. so it's look it, it none of this is bad I'm not saying it's bad I'm saying that crowdstrike is getting better they are reducing their operating losses they are continuing to invest they are doing the right thing to hoover up market share here, but the profits Let's let's not call them artificial, but but they're getting some steroids here. I mean, that's it's it's I mean, look, that's what it is. There's nothing really wrong with that. They have a fat balance sheet and they're getting some benefits from that. So, you know, on a core operating basis, they are still running a loss. But it is right to say that they are getting more efficient, they're growing well, they're hoovering up share. And I think that's the, what they should be doing.
0: I love it when you break it down like that because it always helps me see beyond the the, the headlines of, of what profitability really is. Let's talk about their modules because this is land and expand, right? So one of right. the, the things that they do is they, they they get you in with a few different things and then they add on different modules. And yes. one of the things they talked about a lot in the press release is – how many customers are getting more modules? So, like they talked about, the sixty-three percent have more than five modules. So, with CrowdStrike, did it's land and expand, right? Do they have to keep landing more or expanding more, and just putting more and more modules on more and more customers as as things evolve?
1: Well, they have to do both, but I think what's what's more important is the landing part. You want a long tail of customers because it, it's okay to have just a boatload of customers and then the vast majority of them have like one or two modules but then over time as they get more embedded or they're growing as an enterprise and CrowdStrike is in there, then it's a very natural experience for them to add the second module, the third module, the fourth module. And you don't have to resell that customer. At that point, that's a very profitable customer that grows with you. So the land is way more important, but the expand part is is almost as important in this one sense. At the at the largest level, the the companies that are really going to drive cash flow for CrowdStrike are those big companies that have really embedded CrowdStrike, and they're having six, seven, eight plus modules, and they have made essentially CrowdStrike their outsourced you know chief information security officer. Like the entire security operation is essentially outsourced to CrowdStrike. Those customers they're going to be a big driver of cash flow for the company. But to like feed the flywheel, Deidre, to answer your question, the land is more important, but the expand is very close behind because like the land feeds the flywheel, but when the flywheel spins and the large customers are really generating, you know, a lot of interest, a lot of spend, that's what feeds the cash flow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've mentioned that they're they're really kind of hoovering up market share. You talked a little bit about Sentinel One. Are there any uh, other competitors out there with with CrowdStrike that, or, or is it is it just dominating the competition now?
1: No, no. There, I mean, look there there are big names that are in security, like Microsoft is one that we should be paying a lot of attention to because Microsoft has huge interests in in security. And, And they're not the only ones. You know, Datadog is a company that is very interested in providing more security. But CrowdStrike is partnered up with Zscaler. I think that is a very profitable partnership. They operate at different parts of the security spectrum. And I think that helps both of them. I think it gives both of them some interesting tailwinds. So it's not like they just own this space. What's happening is that in the part of the space, they really started at protecting devices, your iPhone, your computer, right? And then they've expanded beyond that and they've done it very, very well. And then they have a partnership with Zscaler and that is very profitable for both of them. So- On a, on a, at scale, there aren't that many companies that are really fighting at the same level CrowdStrike is, but Microsoft is certainly one of them. And it's, it's not going to be, it's not like CrowdStrike is going to get this space to itself. But the point competitors like Sentinel One that said, hey, no, look, we can do endpoint security just as well. And we can give you a lot of the same capabilities that are native to CrowdStrike. And we can just do it better because we're doing AI. That has fallen completely flat. And CrowdStrike has given itself a lot of runway to grow by beating its primary competitors in endpoint security. And so they've they've really scaled up quite well. But I will say this, it would be better if CrowdStrike was being more specific in their earnings announcements about how they are scaling and gaining that traction, because they used to be really specific in the earnings release, Deidre, about like, hey, here's how many customers have... Six plus modules. Here's the number that has seven plus. Here's the number that has eight plus. And that used to be in the supplemental information. It used to be in the press release. Now you have to go and listen to the call to get that. That's a, maybe it's a minor quibble, Deidre, but man, do not miss the earnings call because this kind of got this data that we were used to seeing in the published documents, it's gone. It's not in there anymore. You have to go listen to the earnings call to get that detail. There's good detail, but it was, I have to admit, that was kind of a cold cup of coffee when I read the CrowdStrike earnings release and I didn't see the key metrics I'm used to seeing.
0: Yeah, good good, good reminder to always look at all of the materials uh, when, when you're looking at a, at a company's results. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome, thanks for your time today, Tim. Thanks, Deidre. Secondhand sales are booming. I talked to James Reinhardt, CEO of ThreadUp, about how his company is taking on the world of clothing resale. I feel like you've got the classic founder story. So you founded the company after having this experience of taking clothes to a local consignment shop. They didn't want them. You got turned down. You thought there must be a better way. So tell us about the better way.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, the idea was we all have clothes in our closets that we don't wear. You know, the ways that we get rid of them have never been something where people are like, you know what, it's been, it's such a great consumer experience getting rid of the clothes I'm no longer wearing, right? We just end up giving them away. And so the insight was to reinvent you know how people got rid of the things they were no longer wearing uh, and then build what we thought would be a modern you know modern thrift store, right? So if you um, you think back fifteen years ago, you had eBay, you had Craigslist, uh, that was really it. The iPhone had just been invented. you know people were staying in Airbnbs and Spotify, and so you had all these consumer experiences that were evolving. We thought thrift you know uh, had a whole new new app uh, to play out, and we wanted to figure that out for customers
0: interesting well. I, I don't start by interviews with Google but I did Google ThreadUp and one of the questions <laughs> that came up was what is unique about ThreadUp. So I was curious how would you answer that question?
2: I think the, the defining uniqueness for us is that historically in resale or secondhand you either had to go to a dingy, you know, thrift store, right, a Goodwill store with racks and racks that smelled like used clothing or you had to do everything yourself, you know, on eBay, you had to take a photo and describe the item and deal with customer service and ship the item. I think what's unique about us is we take all of the work out of the process for you as, uh, as a seller. So you fill all your clothes in a, in a clean out kit and send it to us. We take care of the photography, the itemization, the pricing, customer service, holding. So we, we are fully soup to nuts on the seller side. And then for buyers, you know, unlike a traditional thrift store experience or an eBay experience, it's this very elegant, nice buying experience where it's equivalent to shopping on any you know, e-commerce site or shopping in Nordstrom, right? Where it's great product photos and descriptions and it's easy to navigate. And so I think the discreet you know, difference for us is really removing all the friction uh, from buyers and sellers and that's proved to be successful.
0: Well, you've got that two-sided marketplace, right? I mean, you talked about about eBay and about others. I mean, certainly with with Airbnb and everything. So, with two-sided marketplaces, the challenge is always balancing things out. How do you how do you do that when you've got the buyers who want to buy and and things sellers are going to get rid of. They're not always the same. So, how does that work?
2: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, two-sided marketplaces generally speaking are always supply constrained. And so, if you think about what constrains Airbnb's growth, right? It's it's people listing their homes. Or uh, Open Table was an example we used for a long time, where what constrained Open Table's growth uh, was getting new restaurants on the platform. So, generally speaking, supply is the name of the game. And so, we've always started there, which is how do we make sure that we're creating an elegant, uh, easy, uh, valuable supply experience? And so, we start there, Deirdre, right? Which is how do we make it so easy for us to get supply? And once we have sort of the quantity of supply that we want, we then start sculpting that supply a little bit. And so on the margin, we are trying to make sure that our sellers are sending us things that are in season, that are in style, right, that are in great shape, that would meet the bid, you know, of, of a buyer. And so then we work from there to the buyer population uh, where we're trying to figure out what's on trend, what's in season, uh, what would what would delight our buyers at a given price point. So. Um, it's a constant iterative cycle, but but the defining feature is really the seller piece.
0: Well, you publish a resale report every year on ThredUp, and I think it's a great resource for understanding just how how big things are. Uh, in the report, you noted resale grew five times as much as broader retail clothing. We we see a lot of Gen Z; it's it's a big thing for them. How, what do you, what else is growing resale right now?
2: I mean, Gen Z is definitely a, a driver, but I would say it's really across. Across age spectrum and and demographics, I think, you know, you're seeing, you know, people who really over the last 10 to 15 years have grown up with, you know, climate and sustainability on the mind. And I think that has made people change behaviors across a number of areas, right? So I think you're seeing the growth of electric cars, you're seeing the growth of solar, uh, you're seeing, you know, mobile penetration continues. I think all of those are you know, indicators of, you know, a more technology forward consumer and a consumer who cares more about the planet. And so when you think about where, where resale sits, it's technology enabled because everything needs to be done through your smartphone or or um, in our distribution centers is all, is all tech enabled. And it needs to be a consumer mind shift that's happening where shopping sustainably, shopping thrift uh, makes a lot of sense. And I think that second piece of, of how the consumer is evolving is the most important um, because, you know, more than ever now, I think consumers are, are indicating sustainability and resale, you know, as a preference.
0: It's it's sort of interesting because we, we we want to do better. We want to save the planet, but we also don't necessarily want to stop our consumption. And I think that that is part of it as well. One of the things I find really fascinating about what up does is you've sort of pioneered this idea of resale as a service, uh, uh, they, I've, I've been told you trademarked it, which is pretty cool. So this is brands and retailers uh, trying to deliver resale experiences to their customers. This seems just like a huge opportunity. How, how big could it be? Yeah,
2: I mean, resale as a service. So that's just to be clear—that's you know us using our technology and operations to power this for brands. So we work with J. Crew and Kate Spade and Madewell and Athleta—you know, really big brands. And look, I think it's going to be a big part of the future. Uh, because I think brands are starting to appreciate that this is where the consumer is moving. And, you know, great brands, you know, what, what they do really, really well is reinvent themselves on behalf of, you know, the next generation of consumers. And so I think if you're running a brand these days, you have to pay attention to resale. I think what will be interesting to watch over the next three to five years is that just how consumers start to navigate a world where where they can shop resale across all these unique Brands, right, and and so we think a lot at ThreadUp around, you know, how does that uh, fragmentation, you know, impact us? Uh, Where do we sit in that ecosystem? But but I'm very um, bullish on resale becoming sort of a of a primary channel for brands over time.
0: I know you've been testing out charging a fee for your clean-out bags. Those are the bags that people fill up with everything and send off to ThreadUp. So it's, a, I think it's, a, it seems like a smart strategy to me because it'll, you know, it's sort of like online dating, right? When it's, when it's free, you don't get the best quality. Yes, so yes, yes. so why did you make that pivot and how is it working out so far?
2: Yeah. Your instincts are great. That's, that's exactly it. It's um, when things are free, uh, you, you really do have, um, this, uh, moral hazard, uh, of people wanting to just send you everything and being really indiscriminate about it. And so, by charging a fee that we take out of your payout, right? So we don't charge you up front. We, we, we process all your goods, sell your goods, and then we, we take a fee. It provides just a little bit of friction for, for sellers. And it has been, by all measures, really a home run because not only are we getting better sellers in the door, they're actually sending us more items. So if you think about it, if you're going to spend 10 bucks or 12 bucks sending a bag of clothes to ThredUP, if you're going to spend 12 bucks, you might as well fill it to the brim. And so you get more items in the bag, and then people there's a psychology where once you're paying for something, you're just like a little bit more discerning, and so people are are checking for quality. Maybe they're doing an incremental wash. They're doing things that are improving the number of items we can accept uh, out of the bag. And so, uh, so yeah, it's one of those things, Deidre. Where as the founder, <laughs> I'm like, man, why didn't we do this like five years ago? And and you know, there's all sorts of reasons why, but but yeah, it's it's been a real uh, it's been a real winner.
0: Well, ThreadUp has been kind of on this journey of cost cutting, uh, dealing with a bit of a challenging uh, macroeconomic environment <laughs> for the last couple of quarters. Yeah. Uh, so you're moving closer to break even. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, what metric should investors in the company, and I am one, uh, yeah. pay, to pay attention to as signs of success?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we you know, on our last earnings call we, we talked about um, the double digit growth that we've been seeing, um, you know, all year. We're guiding you know north of twenty percent growth. In Q3 and Q4, uh, and importantly, with a thousand bips of margin of EBITDA expansion. And so, you know, I, I've been ta- when I've been talking to investors as, as part of the, the earnings process, you know, I challenge them to find another company out there that's growing at that rate, you know, with that type of margin expansion. So, uh, we feel very good about how the business is, is being operated. We've been very public about breaking even in Q4. Feel very good about you know that path. But it's just a waypoint right at the end of the day, you know, businesses have to generate free cash flow over time and you know, we're committed to that. So I give the team a lot of credit. I, I think we are operating as well as anybody out there, you know, in, in the broader ecosystem for consumers and um, let's we'll keep doing what we're doing.
0: So last question for you, Thred up in five years, do you think uh, will resale as a service be a larger part of the business? Will it still be uh, the clean out bags to direct to consumer? What, what do you see and what do you hope for?
2: yeah, I think our consumer business will be uh, will be much bigger than it is today. You know we've you know over the last sort of ten years, you know we've been doubling the business every few years. So you know I feel like the business will be significantly bigger uh, from from a consumer perspective. And then I think we will ultimately be powering Ras for more and more brands. And I think the way I've often spoken about it is think about ThreatUp as really the the resale infrastructure on the internet. Uh, it's it's the piping that I think resale is going to run on, and um, I think that's going to be an exciting place to watch.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.